welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we're, we're so thankful for you, and uh, just as we were singing about your goodness, Lord, we just pray that that would be the dominant theme through our worship, through this time in the Word, through our time in communion together, and even our fellowship afterward, that, that our song, so to speak, our conversation would be about your great goodness. You're so good to us. We pray, Lord, that as we dig into your word tonight, that you would just help us to more and more respond in love and gratitude for your great goodness to us in Jesus Christ. That's what this is about. We want to give you more of ourselves We want to give less of ourselves to sin and more of ourselves to you. We want to give our whole selves to you. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work in us, even now as we look at your word in Romans 8 and as we dig into it. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide my words and that you would guide their hearing. And Lord, we just pray that this would be a majorly transformative thing to dig into your word together. Free us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last month, we've been in a series in Romans 6 through 8 on how to walk in freedom from habitual sin. And I gave you an acronym. I don't know if you like it. What is it? VIM. Okay, cool. Uh, So you guys remember that. So it's an acronym to basically hold together the important truths in Romans 6 through 8 and what we need to walk in freedom from habitual sin. The first one's vision. We need to have a vision for what God's really given us in Jesus Christ and the type of freedom he's given us. If you look at the first half of Romans 6, as we did a few weeks ago, you'll see that we've been united to Christ such that we've died to sin, we're alive to God, and that we can walk in freedom now so that we don't have to be enslaved to any any particular sin. doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. And I know you guys, you guys aren't even close to risking that, but uh, me either, but we won't be sinless, but we won't, we don't need to be enslaved to any particular sin. And every time a temptation's brought to us to fall back into that sin, there's a choice to not do it. We have the opportunity to actually walk in freedom. So that's the vision part. Uh, Secondly is the intention. So the second half of Romans 6, he talked about how we have to really intend to walk in freedom from habitual sin. We have to want to. And Paul actually talked with us about that. He goes, you realize that habitual sin is slavery, right? And then he says, how was it working out for you? How was that sin even, you know, giving you anything in your life except for death? And so that was the second half of Romans 6. And then last week, we were look, started to look at the means. So we have to have the right vision for change. We have to have an intention to change. And then we have to do it by the right means. We have to take hold of the right power. We have to be relying on the right strength. And in Romans 7, we saw the way to consistently be defeated by our sin. And that's if we rely on the law and our own strength. So that was last week in Romans 7. This week in Romans 8, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and it's going to show us where true freedom is found, okay? Where true freedom is found. Uh, Let me just read it for you right now. So take a look at Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read it for you guys. And you do want to look at it. This is one of those things where I'm constantly saying, oh, and look at this, and look at that, and look at this, and it's no fun if you're not looking at it, okay? So here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the Word of God. So, Romans 8 is really an answer to the cry of despair we heard in Romans 7. Do you guys remember the vicious cycle in Romans 7? Romans 7 verse 15, Paul said this about his time when he was relying only on himself and the law. He said it this way, For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do the thing I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Now, if if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. So there's this vicious cycle of temptation and falling into sin, and that it ends with this cry of desperation in verse 24, chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Guys, this is a, a desperate cry. This is a cry of somebody that is drowning, okay? This is somebody that's drowning in their own habitual sin. And, and so the question is, what does someone like that need to hear? Like, what's going to set a person like that free? If this is a a person that's crying out in desperation, drowning in their habitual sin, what do they need to hear? And Romans 7 would tell us what they don't need is to be thrown the anchor of the law and told to swim harder. Okay? That's what Romans 7 doesn't say. It doesn't say, you know, toss them the anchor of the law and tell them to swim harder. No, Romans 8 has something way better for us. What do they need to hear? This text tells us there's two things they need to hear, and it's one is believe the gospel, and the second one is trust in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at those two things. First, believe in the gospel. So there's this desperate cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the first thing to say is believe the gospel. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You guys might not realize how strange of an answer that seems at first, because the complaint in Romans 7 is that I'm enslaved to sin, I'm caught in sin, I can't get free of this habitual sin, and then the answer in Romans 8 is, there's no condemnation for you. It seems like the wrong answer to the question, right? If the problem is enslavement to sin, why is he reinforcing the gospel to us that we are not under condemnation, It doesn't make sense unless believing the gospel somehow frees us from habitual sin. And it does. Okay? And it does. Okay, what is the gospel? We should back up. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. That's what the word means. And there's a beautiful outline of it in verse 3. Take a look at it. There's a one-verse gospel presentation here. It says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Okay, here's the big thing of the gospel. We start with God. God is the only source of lasting happiness, okay? 
You guys might not have ever seen God that way. God is the only source of everlasting happiness. Everything that has ever made you happy was invented by God. It was created by God. It was given as a gift. Maybe it was distorted in some way, but God is the only source of happiness. There aren't two. It isn't like God's this big fountain of happiness and then Satan has this other fountain of happiness. He does not have a fountain of happiness, by the way. He has a fountain of death and destruction and, and terrible things, right? God is the fountain of all joy. The problem is, is that our sin has separated us from him. The word in, in verse one is condemnation. You know, we've been separated from him. We've been separated from him because he is holy. He's perfect. Sin can't come near him. And yet, and so we can't come near him, which is a problem because like I said, he is the only one that can give you everlasting happiness and you've been cut off from him. And what this verse says is when he says that it, the law was weakened by the flesh is that we cannot use the law to fix this. Okay. That's the solution of religion. Religion would come in and say, yeah, I see you're a sinner. I see God's holy. Here's a bunch of laws. Do your best. We'll see how it goes. We'll know at the end. Sound familiar? Okay. That's not the gospel, right? He says that the law is weakened by our flesh. We can't do it. We're stuck. That's what Romans 7 says. We can't save ourselves. We can never try hard enough and be good enough to, to be acceptable before God. But the good news is, is that God took care of it himself. So contra to religion, where it'd say, here's the laws, do your best. What, what the gospel says is that God has come in and done it for us. Take a look again at verse three. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so God knew you couldn't do this. And so what he did is he sent his own son, God the son. God the son becomes a man. He, he lives a perfect life. He dies in our place on the cross so that your sin would be thoroughly condemned. Okay? You know, forgiveness in the gospel isn't just like he decided to like just forget about it. Or, you know, I know you tried and, you know, and there's good reasons why you failed. And, you know, we're just going to kind of put that up to the side. It's like a mulligan. Don't worry about it. Right? That's not what God did, right? He thoroughly dealt with your sin. Your sin was thoroughly condemned at the cross. When you look at Jesus hanging on the cross, that is your sin on the perfect son of God and him bearing your condemnation for you so that your sin is literally paid for, okay? Every single sin, if you trust in Jesus, has been literally paid for. So that verse one says that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that sound good? No condemnation. You know, sometimes you feel bad about your sin as a Christian. It's called conviction. It's the Holy Spirit telling you, come back home, leave that alone, get away from that. That's not condemnation. That's conviction. Condemnation is something that I can tell you, if you're in Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him as your savior, God has absolutely no condemnation for you. Isn't that amazing? His opinion is the only one that matters, by the way. This is God. And he has no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. Think about it with me. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you're united to him, if God considers you by his, Jesus's perfect life, how could there be any condemnation for you? You're in Jesus, right? Does God have any condemnation for Jesus? He doesn't. He paid for it on the cross. It's gone. You know, God paid your debt and now you have no condemnation. That's what it means to be in him, okay? If you're in him, then you're safe in him. Now, if you're in Christ... You are not condemned no matter how far you've fallen. 
Isn't that awesome? Because we could say, yeah, you know, I know that was true when I first came to Christ, but then I really blew it. I really went down a path of sin. I've, I've sinned against him in ways that there certainly is condemnation. And he's saying, no, no matter how far you've fallen, there is no condemnation for you. That drowning man in Romans 7 needs to hear that, okay? That drowning man in Romans 7 needs to hear that there is no condemnation for him. But he doesn't just need to hear it to encourage him. He actually needs it to help free him. Because guys, believing that message actually helps to free us from doing the same sin over and over again. Turns out that believing the gospel actually is one of the things that helps us to not do the same sin over and over again. I get that from verse four. Take a look at it. He talks about how he sent his son so that there'll be no condemnation for us. And then verse four says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you notice that? In order that? In order that, like, why did he save us through Jesus? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God sent his son to lift the burden of your condemnation in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you, who do not walk in the flesh, but according to the spirit. What he's saying here is that God saved us through Christ so that we would be people that live utterly for God. Like he actually saved us, not just to forgive our sins, but to make us such that we actually live the righteous requirements of the law. Not that we're going to live it perfectly or anything like that, but that there's going to be a radically changed life. Isn't that great? It's going to be a radically changed life. It's a life that Jesus said his followers, that their righteousness would exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Like he actually sent his son to free us to live for him in a new way. Do you guys remember the three uses of the law? that I talked about last week, three uses of the law. So the law is given to us for three reasons. One, to show us what's right. Then to show us our need for Christ, and it does, okay? And then the last one is that having been saved through Jesus, we would use the law as a way to love God back, not to earn or anything, but because we're so grateful and thankful and love him so much that we look at his law and look at the things that he loves and then do the things that he loves as a way of gratitude and love back, not earning, okay? but as something that we do because we love him. And that's what that's talking about in verse four. It's talking about that third use of the law, that we would be free to keep God's law out of love and gratitude for him. And this makes sense, guys. I mean, if we have a relationship with God and we love him and we're grateful, what do we want to do? We want to live for him. We want to live in a way that that pleases him, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That keeping his law is actually a way that we show our love for him. And, you know, the traditional catechisms, like the Heidelberg Catechism, it's laid out this way. Uh, guilt, grace, gratitude. So it starts from where we are, guilt, that we have not kept God's law, and so we're judged before him. And then grace, that Jesus has taken our place and removed all of our sins. And then the last part is gratitude. And you know where that catechism puts the Ten Commandments? Ingratitude. It's kind of a cool move. It doesn't put it in the guilt part, which it also works for that. It puts it in the gratitude part. Like, here's how you live. Here, now live for him. The gospel, guys, doesn't leave us saved but enslaved. Okay, I think that that's the impression I had for a long time, is that the gospel would save me and leave me enslaved. It's like, yeah, I'm forgiven, but I'm basically, not a whole lot's going to change here, and I'm just going to kind of continue to be beat up by sin for the rest of my life. We're going to fight it for the rest of our lives, but there should be discernible change. There should be discernible freedom. That's good news to the guy in Romans 7, right? Guy in Romans 7 doesn't just need to hear he's forgiven. 
He needs to hear that he can be set free. That's part of the gift of the gospel. And guys, when you share the gospel, share that part of the gift. Because I don't know about your background, but my background in sharing the gospel was something like, hey, Jesus died for your sins. Come believe in him and you'll be forgiven, but you're going to have to change your life. Which is such a weird thing. You know, like, here's the gift, but the bummer is you're going to have to stop sinning as much as you possibly can. And, you know, you're really going to have to tighten it up. As if a changed life is part of the bad news. It's not a part of the bad news. It's part of the good news. To anybody that feels like Romans 7, it's like, you know, Jesus will forgive your sin and he's going to gradually change you and make you more and more free to follow God. You'd be like, oh, that's good news. That's good news to somebody in Romans 7. That would be extremely good news to a lot of people in our culture. A lot of people you know. A lot of people know they're enslaved to things they would desperately not want to live in. And part of the gift of the gospel is freedom. It's not instantaneous. There's no quick fixes. But it's something where the Holy Spirit does discernible work throughout our lives. The gospel, guys, is good news in two ways. Jesus not only removes the penalty of our sin, he also removes gradually the power of our sin. And then someday, praise God, he's going to remove the presence of sin from us entirely when he returns. Jesus gives us the good news that he gives us both freedom and forgiveness. And guys, this has always been a part of the promise. Like if you even read in the Old Testament about the new covenant promise, it wasn't just forgiveness, it was freedom. Take a look at Ezekiel 36. You really should see this. Ezekiel 36 verse 25 This is an Old Testament promise, maybe 800 BC, roughly, and um, God is promising what he's going to do through Christ like 800 years later, and this is what he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean, right? That's forgiveness, right? From all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see that? It's not just forgiveness. It's freedom. It's transformation. It's, it's your idols of your heart gradually being repented of and removed, right? And we're always going to struggle with sin throughout our whole lives. I don't want to like tell you like, bing, you're done, you know? But this is something that's real that God does, removing this idols from our hearts. And then it says in here that when we come to him, he actually gives us a new living heart. We had a heart of stone towards God. He gives us a living heart that beats for him. And then did you notice the last part? That not only did he say that he was going to bring this kind of freedom from slavery to sin, but he said how? Did you see how in last verse, verse 27? He said, I'll put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit. So first thing that person that's drowning in that habitual sin needs to hear is trust the gospel, both parts, forgiveness and freedom. And then the second part is that he needs to hear, trust the Holy Spirit. Trust the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. When you read Romans 7 and Romans 6, Romans 7 is pretty hopeless and dreary until the very end, right? Whereas Romans 8 has this like cheeriness to it. What's the difference? Difference is the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 4, the second half. It says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, how? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And what's really neat about that verse, do you see where it says that the law might be fulfilled in us? That fulfilled in us there. The Greek there is a passive voice. It's in the passive voice, which means that it's not something you do. It's something being done to you. It even sounds that way. 
It says that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. You know, it sounds passive. It sounds like somebody else is doing. Who's the somebody else? The Holy Spirit is it someone else. That the Holy Spirit would so work in our lives as to fulfill his laws through us as we trust in Christ. And we can see that from the context. It's all about the Holy Spirit. So I want to give you three things in the rest of this passage that the Holy Spirit does to free us from habitual sin. I mean, if we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit, if we're going to trust in him, we need to know something of what he's going to do to free us from sin. And I see three things in verses 7 through 11. The first one is the Holy Spirit changes our minds. Take a look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does for us is change our minds. And some of you, some of you were probably saved really young, and maybe in, in, your, in your family as a kid. You might not remember this, but some of you got saved later on when you were adults. And you noticed your mind to being changed, right? And you might have even been surprised or disturbed by it. A friend of mine, he, um, he was a young kid. He was riding along with me when I, as I'm a horse vet, and he was riding along with me. And, and we talked a lot about the Lord, and he came from a family that wasn't believing. And he was very antagonistic, and he was like a teenage kid, and he would like try and go after me and stuff. It was good. It was fun. And uh, a little later, he, he called me, and he goes, Eric, you wouldn't believe what happened to me. And I said, what? He goes, I'm a Christian now. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, I was surprised too. <laughs> and he said the other day, so he had a friend that was a believer and he's hanging out with him. And then he goes, the other day he was, he was late for church and he was like super mad and frustrated and stuff. And he forgot his Bible and had to turn back around and go home and he's all stressed. And then he went, wait, I'm late for church. Like, this is weird. I didn't used to go to church. Like, I'm late for church. And it bothers me that I'm late for church. And then he's like, and I have a Bible that I can't find. Like, he was just amazed that God had somehow just hijacked his mind, you know? Suddenly, he had all these new desires, you know? But we start off in a state, guys, where we really, really, really need the Holy Spirit to change our minds. He says here, the state that we're in before the Holy Spirit does that, verse 5, says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Our minds are naturally, apart from the Holy Spirit, set on ourselves, Christian and non-Christian. I mean, if we're living in a fleshly way, in a hardened way, we can have our minds set on the flesh. Our, our minds are all about ourselves. It's about self-love and self-pity and self-seeking and self-confidence and self-righteousness and self-defense, right? It's all about myself. The essence of the mind set on the flesh is, is, a, is a person, a soul that's like curved in on itself. Like all it sees is itself, all it's, you know, attracted to is the things that it needs for itself. It's, it's the soul like curved in on itself. And verse six says that for to set the mind on the flesh is death. It, like this soul that's like curved in on itself and only cares about itself, that in the middle of that self, there's like this black hole of death that just kind of sucks in all your joy and your peace and, and destroys relationships. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that it could stop. But there may come a day when you can no longer do that. 
then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just to grumble itself, but just to grumble itself going on forever like a machine. You know, that's the self turned in on itself. And underneath all of that is hostility to God. Look at verse 7. For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So underneath all this lostness and this mindset on the flesh is a hostility to God. The truth is is that apart from the Holy Spirit's work in us, we naturally don't like God. Not the real one. Not the one of Scripture. Isn't that true? And if you do like him, like that's the Holy Spirit at work. Because naturally, we don't like God. That's actually the most tragic thing about people is that we naturally hate the only one who can make us happy. Isn't that crazy? Source of all joy, we're like, don't want him. You know, I want him as far away from me as possible, right? And why is that? Well, we don't want him telling us what to do, right? We don't want to be told what to do by him. We know if we got close, he would tell us what to do. I mean, who does he think he is telling us what to do? God or something, right? No, he is God, right? So it's totally appropriate. And who is he to tell me what would make me ultimately happy forever? You know? It's not like he's designed me and the universe. Like, he would know. He would know, right? But this is the crazy thing is that naturally we're irritated by him. And I think all of you guys can probably remember a time when you've been irritated by God in that fleshly mindset. And this is something that's just totally tragic, that we're naturally super annoyed and irritable when we hear God's law. We're like, ah, ah, you know? That's hostility to God. And we can't please God, guys, if we don't even like him or want to obey him. But then look what happens when the spirit comes into our lives and makes us love God. Look at verse 5 in the second half. It says, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Guys, this is the biggest change the spirit makes immediately is he changes our minds. Just like that friend of mine. He's like, I think I like God now. You know, I think I want to go to church. I think, you know, it, you can remember when this happened to you, that suddenly you, you loved God's word and you're like, I want to read this. I don't know why. It's just so fascinating and so wonderful. And then you're like, I think I want to be around God's people, which is totally not what you wanted before for pretty good reasons, like reasonable reasons that you had. You didn't want to be anywhere near the church or God's people. And now you're like, yeah, they're flawed people, but I want to be near them because these are people that are pursuing Christ. And then you found yourself wanting to be a part of the mission of God, you know? You're like, you hear God's mission to to reach the nations and to reach your neighbor, and you're like, yes, I want to be a part of that. And you started to constantly be praying for God's power in your life because you're like, I need him. I know that I can't do this myself. That's what the Spirit does. He makes us alive to God. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, some people might hear that and think, yeah, I remember when I was like that, and I'm not like that anymore. You know, like, oh, yeah, I remember in the good old days when I was really on fire for the Lord. And sometimes there's this talk with Christians of like, you know, that that's normal. You start off fired up about the Lord, and then you just kind of fizzle out and die. Okay? Like, that's the plan. That's not the plan, guys. Right? The normal Christian life doesn't look like a shooting star really bright in the beginning and kind of like fades out to death. Right? The normal Christian life looks more like the rising of the dawn. Proverbs 4.18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. It's like the sun coming up. It gets brighter and brighter. We get hotter and hotter towards God. Or Paul says that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Like that's the normal Christian life. And so if you're in a place where you can look back and you think, man, I really used to care about these things, 
and I just don't feel it anymore. You need to pursue revival, right? You need to pursue renewal. Like, this is what the Spirit does, though. Good news is, this is what the Spirit does. We need to, we need to seek Him. We need to call on Him to make us alive again so, so that our minds are continually turning towards God. Dallas Willard had this really cool example of how our minds should be towards God of a compass. You know, no matter where you turn it, it, it points to north. And he said this, Does our mind spontaneously return to God when not intensely occupied? as the needle of the compass returns to the North Pole when removed from the nearest magnetic sources. I mean, there's times, and I'm thinking about the jobs you guys are in, where you probably should not be meditating on Scripture, okay? Some of you apprehending bad guys, some of you doing surgery. I mean, there'd be certain times when it's not beneficial. But when your mind's not intensely occupied, that it would return, like a compass, like to magnetic north and think about the Lord. That's what the Spirit does. Take a look at verse 6. Second half says, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I just love that. When our minds are set on the spirit, we have life and peace. It's a mind alive and at peace. In Isaiah 26, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isn't that cool? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Like that is the best mental health verse ever. Okay. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That, uh, that's what the Spirit does for us. That's Isaiah 26.3. I know some of you are like, where is it? I need that. Um, and guys, that's a life that actually pleases God, right? Because it says the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. A mindset on the Spirit can please God. We actually can please God now. We don't earn anything from him, but our, our obedience to him and the Spirit is pleasing to him. You guys have heard the verse in uh, Isaiah 64, I think it is, that says, all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags, right? You've heard this verse a lot. And that's a verse that we use a lot evangelistically, which is really good, that any righteous deed you do, it's all you know sorted in with sin, and it's not going to make you righteous before God. But I want to tell you, once you become a Christian, all your righteous deeds are not filthy rags to God. Before you were saved, God was a judge that was impossible to please because he required perfect righteousness. Once you came to Christ, God is now your father who is actually quite easily pleased with you. Not to earn anything, but he's pleased with you in all of your efforts to follow him. And the reason why he's so pleased with, with the things that you do is because that life you're living is his son's life through you. He's like, oh, I recognize that. That's Jesus. I like that. <laughs> right? He is, he's easily pleased by his kids. Second way that the Holy Spirit sets us free is he's come to dwell in us, okay? And I know a lot of you guys grew up in church, been in church a long time. This verse is not like wow to you. It should be, okay? So I hope it will be. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit does not belong to him. So this verse says, you Christians, that God lives in you. And I know you guys are like, oh yeah, I heard that before. I'm like, that should not land lightly, okay? This is Yahweh. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the, this is the God who could not be approached, that you know, people died when they saw him, right? Because of his holiness. And if you're in Christ, God lives inside of you now. You have become like the holy of holies here. God dwells within you. It's an amazing thing. It's a crazy thing. I mean, you of all people, God dwelling in you, 
You? That's strange. It's strange for me. Do you forget this? You know? You driving along thinking like, you know, like I'm temple of the Holy Spirit right now, driving along, you know? Getting mad at people, right? (laughs) Guys, and this thing that the Holy Spirit does is like such a loving thing to do in our desperate condition. Think about the guy in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And God's response is to come and live in you. Isn't that amazing? This is, imagine this. Imagine your home is such a wreck that you can hardly live in it. Some of you might not need to use your imagination. Sorry. Um, but imagine your home is such a wreck that you can't hardly even live in it. It needs all these renovations. It's, it's disgusting. It's dangerous. It's everything, right? And you have no money to make these repairs. Now, imagine you have a friend that not only promises to help you fix it, but it moves in with you. So he can work on it continually and kind of keep you upbeat during it, right? He's coming in to encourage you and work on it with you. That's an amazing friend because I told you it's disgusting and dangerous in there, okay? And God has come to dwell in you. That friend is the Holy Spirit. The house is our heart and the Holy Spirit's like, I'm going to come live in there and we're going to make this thing right. We're going to turn this thing around. It's amazing. God, he dwells in us to be our happy companion and give us his constant help. It's amazing. And when you're struggling with sin or discouragement or worry, you really should stop and remind yourself of that. That would really help to just stop and say out loud, God lives in me. You just want to say that right now? We could be like, you know, be a little charismatic here. (laughs) Why don't you guys all say it with me? God lives in me. God. God lives in you. And I just think, you know, you're in temptation, you're in despair, you're in worry, you're whatever, and you just stopped and went, God lives in me? That should help. (laughs) He's here. He's present. He's here to help you. That's the difference it makes. We need to stop and recognize that. And one last thing, his work in you, in that house, is going to be nothing short of a resurrection. Take a look at the third one. The Holy Spirit resurrects our deadness. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, okay, Christ is in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. Just so you know, he's the spirit of Christ. Christ is present in heaven. We're going to see that on Ascension Day. Not literally see it, but that'd be great. (laughs) Uh, But he's physically in heaven, and then he's in us by the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's the Christ in you. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then listen to this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is really cool logic. So the logic is this, that if the one who raised Jesus's dead physical body on Easter, if if the one who did that, who actually raised Jesus's dead body up to life and made him physically alive again, if that being dwells in you and he does, he will certainly resurrect you out of your own deadness. I don't think this is talking about your future resurrection because of the context. I think it's talking about resurrecting you out of your deadness right now. He's certainly going to resurrect us later, but he resurrects us in a sense now. And I just ask you tonight, do you feel your own deadness? Do you feel it? Maybe you don't right now. Maybe you're in a good place. We can be in a good place sometimes. I think sometimes we have to be like, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you right now feel your own deadness to keep God's commands? Do you feel your own inability to change your mind and your heart and your actions? Guys, good news. The Holy Spirit raises the dead. He works with people just like you all the time.
right? He raises from the dead. Remember the way that Paul talked about his, his life apart from the power of the Spirit. He said it was a body of death. Guys, the Holy Spirit is the only life we have. And so what it looks like when we talk about abiding in Christ, when we talk about the Holy Spirit living through us, all we bring to God is this carcass, okay? You bring your carcass and you say, God, give me life through your Spirit, right? Or to change the metaphor, Jesus said, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. And you have this image of a vine and branches and all that. All you are is a dead branch, but when you're plugged into Christ, what happens is through your union with him, through the Holy Spirit, his life flows up into you and there's leaves and fruit and it just comes alive. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what he'll do if we abide in him. Bring your carcass, lay your life before him. And through his Holy Spirit, he will like inject his life into you. That's what he does. I want to leave you with one thing. It's another acronym. I realize two acronyms in one sermon is probably a bad thing. But this acronym is uh, John Piper's acronym, and it doesn't actually make a word, um, which is not really an acronym probably. The acronym is this, APTAT, okay? A-P-T-A-T, okay, APTAT. And this is very helpful, and I just want to leave you with this practical thing. Like, okay, APTAT, this is what he says. This is how we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. A, acknowledge. So it would look like this. It'd be like, apart from you, God, I know that I can do nothing. I know that all I bring is my deadness. So you're acknowledging, like, apart from you, I can do nothing. I I know what you've commanded. I know it's a good thing. You know, maybe you're in your house, you're trying to deal with your kids, and you just, like, know the kind of parent you should be, and you just, like, cannot do it anymore. You say, "I I know I can do nothing apart from you. That's the A. The P, pray. You could pray Romans 6, you could pray Romans 8. You could pray something like, resurrect my life from deadness right now. Change my mind, warm my heart to you. Give me the strength to do what you command. I need to see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit right now. Like, I am in no place to live for you right now. And I'm gonna need to see a manifestation of the Holy Spirit right now in my life. That's, that's uh, the P, pray. T, trust, Okay. You want to believe what the, the promises of Romans 6 and Romans 8. Believe it. Remember Romans 6 said, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You need to believe it. That's trust, T. And then act. You got to act. You got to actually resist sin, right? Um, it, it says in Romans 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. I mean, step out believing that God is going to give you the power to actually do what he's commanded. That You'll step out there and he'll support you and he'll give you the energy and the strength to do it. And then lastly, the T, thank him. <laughs> Acknowledge that it's God. How often do we pray? We're like, oh, that was lucky. Or, oh, wow, I really pulled through that. You know, it's like, no, we should be like, God answered my prayer. This was clearly a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And we thank him for it. So it's aptat. And, and just kind of trailing around, do you see how that's different? In the very first message, I talked about common ways that we hear Christians talk about fighting sin. First one was stop it. Okay. So these you know, in sin, and you just tell them, stop it. And they're like, well, I'm trying. And it's like, I said, stop it, you know? And it's just like, just stop it. That somehow your own willpower alone is going to do it. You just need to stop, okay? Or the second one was the, just claim it, you know? God, God will get you through, just, you know, just hope in it, and it'll happen. And then it requires no effort of your own, that somehow, let go and let God, and he's just going to take care of it. There's no effort needed. That's the second way. And then the last way was just accept it. A lot of Christians are just like, well, it's just the way I am, right? This is none of those, right? 
This isn't just stop it. It's rely on the whole power of the Holy Spirit. And it isn't just, you know, kind of let go and let God because you acted, you trusted him and you stepped out and you trusted that he was going to give you the power. And then it's certainly not just accepting it. Let me read verse 11 and we'll close. I want you to really think about these words. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's a promise. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we're super thankful for your love for us that not only would you give your own son, you would give your own son to die in our place to forgive our sin, but that you'd also send your spirit to live in us, to help us live in an entirely new way. And this was for people that didn't like you. That's amazing. We were so irritable and hostile to you. And while we were still your enemies, Christ died for us. Thank you so much. We pray, Lord, that we would live lives of gratitude, that we wouldn't pursue any life change as a way to earn or prove ourselves, but that we would just want to offer our lives back to you, to someone who's been so incredibly good to us. We thank you that our lives are not a life of religious drudgery. They're a life of gratitude to an amazing God. Sign me up for that. A life of gratitude and love to a God who gave everything for me. That sounds amazing. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Oh, that was so good. I wrote down, yeah, I loved it. The gospel does not leave us saved and enslaved. I mean, I just love that verse, verse one, where it says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then you skip down a few verses, and I think it's verse 5. I don't have it pulled up right now, but it says, But Jesus condemned sin in the flesh by dying for us. So no condemnation for us. All of that fell on him. And that's what we get to celebrate right now in communion. Um, And I don't think that two uh, acronyms are too many for one message. Um, I I love that. I wrote that down too. Acknowledge, pray, trust, act, and then thank God. And That's what I wanted to focus communion on right now, that thankfulness. The last few weeks, we've been talking a little bit about what communion means and the different names that the Bible gives to communion to what we're about to do. And one of them is communion, but we've looked at it being called the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Table, the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians. It's also called the Eucharist. And this is a a traditional name. It's been called the Eucharist for a long time. And the Eucharist actually, it's not a Catholic or Orthodox or any other denominational term. It's actually just a Greek (laughs) word. And it's in those passages that talk about Jesus having this last supper that he shared with his disciples. Luke 22, 19 says that Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, and that, that is that word Eucharist right there. That's that Greek word Eucharist, giving thanks. So he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And there's actually three other places in the New Testament where it talks about this meal being a, a meal of thanksgiving. There's a very specific detail in there that Jesus gives thanks before he breaks the bread. And by calling this bread and the cup the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving meal, it reminds us of the, the same thing that uh, the writer of Hebrews does when he says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so today, actually, I'd like for you to stand with me, if you don't mind, if you can, if you're able. We'll stand as we take this together. And as we remember um, the broken body, uh, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood on your behalf, let's remember to give thanks. Jesus was thankful um, as he broke that bread, as he went to the cross for us, so that we could be thankful to him in any and every circumstance that we're going through. Even as he was going to the cross, he stopped to give thanks. And uh, in communion, we also remember that, you know, not only do we give thanks, but this body, this bread was broken for our sin, um, this blood, this cup was shed on our behalf. And we would invite you to take this with us if you are trusting in Christ. And we invite your kids to take it too, as long as, you know, you've talked to them and they know that it's not just a, a snack time during church, but they know that they are breaking bread with with the body, and they are celebrating the fact that Jesus died for them. And this is from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Father, we are I'm so thankful we're thankful. We're thankful for your son. We're, we're thankful that he gave thanks as he was breaking bread and as he was thinking about his own death, as he was preparing to go to the cross and out of the joy of knowing what it would mean to bring us to you, he, he would, with thanksgiving, do that. We pray that we would live this life that we would allow him to live through us, Lord, that we would be always looking to the cross and always be trusting in the Spirit, always be asking to be filled by the Spirit. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps. 